This, this is the third in our series on Paul's letter to the Colossians. Last week we explained the person and the saving work of Jesus Christ, who is the very image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Today we're going to see the vital importance of being, of laying hold of this salvation that he has provided for us, and by laying hold of Christ, by laying hold of Christ and becoming one with him. He lives in you through faith in him. Now, the Church of Colossae is located in the Lycus River Valley in Asia Minor. That's why I put the map up there for you. Uh, now it's uh, southwest Turkey. It's on a main road leading from Ephesus in the west, about 100 miles, to all points east. Hierapolis is just north. Hierapolis is still in existence today. So that picture uh, that the uh, title slide was on, that was a picture of Hierapolis. The lukewarm church at Laodicea mentioned in Revelation 3.15 was just a few miles away about nine miles down the road. Colossae was renowned for its peculiar wood, said to be purple in color. I've never seen purple sheep, but it must have been quite a thing in its day. The people, the people there worshipped angels, and they believed that the angel Michael was their protector for the city of Colossae. Paul wrote this letter about 61 or 62 AD, about the same time as his letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Galatians, and to Philemon, he wrote emails the way I do, prolific and long. So, now, now, being on the river and on a major road, travelers passed through Colossae all the time. Some stayed and brought their foreign ways with them, so the city was kind of a mixture of Romans and of Greeks and of transplanted Jews. And yet this one gospel that they had heard from Paul drew them all together, making them brothers and sisters in the faith. And this was like a new experience for them. They were held together by that one gospel. They had found a new life in Christ. Now, there was a major earthquake in the Lycus Valley just after Paul wrote this letter. It destroyed Colossae. So, why do I mention that? Uh, you see, the gospel news is urgent news. <laughs> urgent news as well as good news. It prepares us for eternity. And Paul had prepared this church at Colossae for eternity. Once we belong to Christ, nothing can separate us from him. No natural disasters, not even death, can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, unfortunately, the constant influx of outsiders introduced a lot of foreign ideas into the church there. Those ideas competed with what they'd been taught. They were in a culture war, huh, just like us. Paul wrote this letter to encourage the Colossian church to continue in the faith as they received it and to hold on to the gospel truth that had transformed them and that had given them truth, not to let go of that, not to choose something different, not to try to twist or reinterpret what they've been taught. Now, as we'll see in today's passage, there's a mystery in the gospel that these believers have not yet grasped. They didn't fully understand the divinity of Jesus Christ or the gracious nature of their salvation. They didn't see that Jesus Christ is in himself their salvation. I'd like to say that wasn't true of us today, but there are so many in the church today that do not understand that our salvation is in Christ. It's in Christ. Paul writes to reveal this mystery to them so they won't be tossed about by every wind of teaching, so they won't seek salvation by any other means than by faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, just because something is a mystery, that doesn't mean it can't be known. It's just kind of hidden from view. It takes place in the heavenly realms, so it's not visible to the natural eye. It has to be seen with spiritual eyes. And it's hard to put such stuff in words. 
go ahead, explain to me the Trinity in 30 seconds or less. You know, there, there are some mysteries that are just difficult to put into words. Now, the Spirit of God reveals such things to us in Christ. In Christ. That's a repeated phrase. Eighty times in Christ is mentioned in the New Testament. Must be something we ought to know. In Christ. He shows us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's from John 17, 3. If you haven't yet, please turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. We'll start with a nut to crack. <laughs> I'm just going to read the text. Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm willing, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there's the mystery. Him we proclaim, that is Jesus, that is the promised Messiah, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature or perfect in Christ, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Another one of those powerful passages. Colossians goes on like this, chapter after chapter. Now it's hard to tell what Paul means in verse 24 when he says, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. It's a mystery, hard to put into words. Paul so identifies himself and so joins himself with Christ that Christ's sufferings become Paul's sufferings, and Paul's sufferings are Christ's. Our Savior has compassion for us. That's our theme for this year. Christ has compassion for us. Why? Because in Hebrews 4, 5, it says he sympathizes with us. We have a high priest who doesn't know how to sympathize with us. He's been through what we have been through. Now, verse 24 may sound like somehow Christ didn't suffer enough. You could read it that way. Translations are often problematic that way. You, you read them and you say, what in the world? But Paul is making up the difference it sounds like. Christ didn't suffer enough. Paul is making up the difference with his own suffering. You could read it that way, but that's not what he means at all. He's speaking about what's lacking in himself, not what's lacking in Christ. He's speaking about what remains to be done as he follows Christ and suffers for him. Like Jesus, Paul was not a victim, and he didn't suffer for nothing. Jesus suffered and died to bring you to God, as we've been singing about, to reconcile you to him so that you might have life in him. And Paul is willing to be laid down his life for that very same end. He is proclaiming the gospel to these Colossians in order to summon the elect to salvation and to gird up the loins of those who were saved. 
Look at verse 25. Paul says pretty much the same thing. He says, the stewardship from God that was given to me, for you, is to make the word of God fully known. That's his ministry. That's my ministry. It's Jason's ministry. And in effect, it's your ministry. So when people ask you about who is this Jesus Christ that you worship, you should be able to give them an explanation. Simply, clearly, in less than 30 seconds. <laughs> anyway, Paul's ministry, Paul's ministry is to make clear who Christ is and what he has done in order to save his people, including these Colossians. His ministry is to explain the gospel clearly, to make God's word, to make Christ fully known whatever the personal cost might be to him to do that. Now, as he explained to the Ephesian church, Jesus suffered and died to make us perfectly acceptable, quote, in the beloved, unquote. That's from Ephesians 1.6. Not in ourselves. We are acceptable in the beloved, in Christ, not in ourselves. Verse 24 might be explained to read like this. I'm going to give you an expanded version if I <clears throat> can take the liberty and the audacity to go ahead and expand on this. I now rejoice in my own sufferings for you in the same way that Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross on your behalf. Now it's my turn to fill up in my own flesh what Christ filled up in his flesh, to fill up whatever is lacking in my own life in that regard, so that I might share in the sufferings of Christ on your behalf. Does that make sense? Verse 24... Is that less clear or more clear? Jason, when he read it, said, that's clear as mud, Bill, you know, so I'm hoping to have, you know, at least watered down the mud so it's less murky. Anyway, Paul says in verses 25 to 28 that he's their steward, their servant for Christ's sake. His responsibility is to make fully known <clears throat> to them both the doctrine and the practice of the faith. He's helping them to become mature. How does he do that? By warning and teaching them with all wisdom. That's what I'm doing here this morning. That's what every preacher does. That's what every teacher does. We warn and we teach with all wisdom. Not our wisdom, but God's wisdom. Paul's stewardship is to ensure that they learn Christ. That's the phrase used in Ephesians 4.20. They learn Christ. That Christ is properly formed in them. That's from Galatians 4.19. As I said, all these letters were written at about the same time. They sent these letters from one church to the other. So what was written to one church was copied, sent to another church, so they were familiar with these other letters. And he's saying, now here's your copy of it. Here's my explanation to you and to your church of the things I've been explaining to all the churches. <clears throat> so the Spirit of Christ is in them. The Spirit of Christ is in us. Conforming them and conforming us to the image of Christ by transforming their minds. How does he do that? Through teaching them God's Word. Romans 12, 2. They should be familiar verses. Um, if they're not, there's uh, five lines of verses at the bottom of your handout. You know, uh, take two or three days to go through those when you get home. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. Now, this is what we see in verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, so we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul must teach them Christ. Not teach them about Christ. He must teach them Christ. To learn Christ means to live in accordance with who Christ is because he lives in every believer by his spirit. This is part of that mystical nature, this mystery of the gospel. Christ 
lives in you by his spirit. He is with you. When he said, I will never leave you or forsake you, he meant it. So often our attitude is Christ left, he ascended, he went to the Father, he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven, he's at the throne, and he's nowhere to be seen. Oh, contraire. Oh, contraire. That's why he sent the Spirit. We'll, st we'll study more about this when we do the book of John later in the year, especially chapters 14 through 16. Their identity is wrapped in Christ's identity. Your identity is wrapped in Christ's identity. Christ's purpose has become their purpose. His work is now their work. They no longer live, but Christ lives in them. We must be united to Christ to do his work as one together. We all must individually be united in Christ, otherwise we can't work together because Christ is not permeating us as a whole, as a unit. Because only in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But this, what I've just said, often comes off as foolishness to the natural mind. You listen to that and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that sort of thing on, you know, the spiritual network. No. <laughs> no. This is a truth to be believed. So it's foolishness to the natural mind. Christ's Spirit reveals it to us. Because he lives in us, Christ's Spirit reveals this to us. He teaches it to us. And he then empowers us to follow Christ, to obey Christ in all things. The work of the Holy Spirit is ever-present in us. He is ever-active in us if we will only listen and follow as he leads. Now, we've got to understand this to understand the power of the gospel. Our salvation is found in Christ alone. It doesn't come by Christ. He's not the means of our salvation. He is our salvation. It's inherent in him. How many times... <laughs> is, that, is that any clearer, you know, at this point? The only way we can lay hold of our salvation is by being united to him through faith, by becoming one with him. It's why we say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. That's not being cute. That's being accurate. And that's why David cries out in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Your salvation. It's located in him. It's inherent in him. I mentioned this at the close of Micah a few weeks ago. If salvation is found in Christ alone, if righteousness is found in him and not through him, and not through him, in him, not through him, then we must become one with Jesus Christ. We must be found in Jesus Christ if we are to be declared righteous by God and saved. This, this is our hope of glory. This is why we have hope. This is our hope of glory. Paul affirmed this when he wrote to the church at Philippi. For his sake, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, lay hold of Christ, grasp Christ, and be found where? Alongside him? Behind him? No, in him. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You notice in this verse, there's the same suffering for Christ that we saw in verse 24. That somehow or other, these things are tied together. They are linked together. This hope, this suffering, this salvation, this righteousness are wrapped up in Christ. And so he is with us at all times because he is in us by his Spirit. 
as I said, Paul doesn't hope to be found with Christ, but in Christ. Now, Christ's righteousness is never our righteousness. Don't mistake that. Christ's righteousness is never our righteousness. It remains His. But for His sake, God declares Christ's righteousness to be ours. The phrase that's used in Scripture is, God imputes it to us, considers it to be our own. So by faith we gain an interest in Christ. That's not to say, gee, Christ is really interesting. mm, That's not what we mean by that. We gain an interest in Christ. We have a share in Him, as if we were buying stock in a corporation. Okay, we own stock in Christ. We have a share in Him. Our portion is Christ. Our portion is Christ. Lamentations 3.24 says this, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I hope in him. Literal, not figurative. We place our hope in him. A choice. We place our hope in him. It's not passive. Like faith, our hope in Christ needs to be exercised. Our hope in Christ isn't an emotion. Our hope in Christ is a real truth, and we have to place our faith in hope. We have to exercise our hope just like we exercise faith. Like faith, our hope in Christ needs to be exercised. By faith, we're made a member of his body. And we act accordingly. It's that second half that we struggle with, isn't it? By faith, we're made members of his body and we act accordingly. By hope, we expect to be heirs with him. We expect that. A firm confidence that it's going to happen. That hope. Not willy-nilly wishing. It it is a firm hope and expectation. And we act accordingly accordingly and we act accordingly because of the hope that we believe Jesus Christ is our inheritance he doesn't gain inheritance for us he is our inheritance that's why apart from him we have nothing and we can do nothing so in verse 29 Paul affirms this gospel truth saying that he's not the one at work but Christ is powerfully at work in him He can work as hard as he wants, and none of it should be mistaken for his own works. That's as true for us as it was for Paul. It's not wrong to work hard for Christ. That's not legalism. Godliness is not legalism. Trusting it for your salvation, that's legalism. Working hard for Christ, not legalism. Why? Because it's all by grace. It's not Paul working, it's Christ powerfully working in him. All glory should therefore go to Christ for whatever Paul does. It's entirely of grace, not of works. Capiche? Okay. This too (laughs) is a mystery. That's why I'm stumbling over trying to get the words out that could properly convey to you the depth of the meaning of this mystery. It's no wonder that Paul said that whatever might be considered gain to him, he counted as loss and rubbish, that he might gain, lay hold of Christ. So when we compliment other believers for their labors, we should see and savor, as Jason put it last week, we should see and savor Christ at work in them. Why? Because that's the truth. Because that's the truth. Do you believe it? If you do things for Christ because of Christ, guess what? It's by grace, and Christ is at work in you when you do it. Work as hard as you can. In verse 27, we see that part of the mystery of the gospel is that salvation is not limited to the Jews. We know this. God has made known 
How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. The Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles, weren't they? Acts 13, 47, to show the way of salvation to them. God promised Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. Not only would Israel be blessed, but all the spiritual offspring of the Messiah. You go to Isaiah 53, and it says he has offspring that he will not see. They are coming. Spiritual offspring. He had no children, but spiritual offspring are coming. That's us. Paul lets these diverse believers in Colossae know that we all belong to God. There are no foreigners in God's house. We are family together. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul admits they may not know him face to face, but he knows them. How? In Christ. <laughs> in Christ. And they know him. How? In Christ. He encourages them by saying that they're all being knit together in love. Knit together in love. As he wrote to the Corinthians, though he's absent in body, he's present in spirit. That's mirrored, that's repeated in this letter that he's writing to the Colossians. The goal, in verse 2, chapter 2, is to reach or to grasp all the riches to know, to have some acknowledgement, to savor all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is... Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ himself is God's mystery, known by all those who belong to him. So I'm going to bring up a familiar phrase. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish. No one's going to snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me as greater than all, and no one's going to Snatched them out of my father's hand. They aren't able to do that. They cannot do that. I and the Father are one. We hope in that truth. That's where our hope lies, is in that truth. In John 17, Christ prayed for his sheep that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be, where? In us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's John 17, 21. Again, when we get to the book of John, we'll go crazy, you know, trying to explain all this stuff, you know, again, and, and explicate it. It's, it's a challenge because it sounds figurative. It sounds poetic. It's not. It's literal. It's literal. And if we can grasp that, if we can grasp the literalness of that, I think we find our strength. I think we find our comfort. I think we find our, our compassion for others. And we receive the compassion of Christ through that knowledge that he is ever with us by his spirit. He lives in us. All believers are one family, one people in Jesus Christ. He lives in each of us and we live in him. We don't need to let go of our cultural differences, but they no longer, they no longer identify us. They no longer define us, do they? Not in Christ. I can meet somebody from Africa. I can meet somebody from Eastern Europe. I can meet somebody from Cambodia that's a believer. And I will share with them and know them as closely as I know my own flesh and blood because of Christ, because they are in Christ and I am in Christ and the Spirit in me recognizes the Spirit in them and vice versa. Our identity is found in Christ alone. Our citizenship is no longer in this world. It's in heaven. It's a challenge for us here in America. Materialism is killing us. When we pray to God, we pray, could I, could, could, could I have more material stuff? 
Could I have a bigger house? Could I have a nicer car? Could I have better clothes? Could I have more food? Could I have... Materialism is not where it's at. We don't live here. Nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore, and therefore, as we deal with one another, let nothing separate us from one another. Why not? Because we are one in Jesus Christ. This eternal bond of fellowship grounded in fellowship with Christ is the foundation on which this entire passage rests. Paul wants them to know of his love for them, for all of them, without exception, without qualification. Christ loves them. And therefore, Paul loves them. Christ suffered for them. And therefore, Paul is willing to rejoice in suffering for them in the name of, on behalf of, with the authority of his Lord Jesus Christ because they are in Christ together as members of one body, his body. We are children of God by his grace, not by human birth. We've been born again from above by the will of God. We have one high priest who is Jesus Christ, and being clothed in him, we may come boldly to the throne of grace. Believers are thus clothed in Christ, a royal priesthood in Christ, who is our high priest. Again, sounds poetic. No, literal. Literal. Grasp it. Savor it. Rely on it. Hope in it. Trust in it. Put your faith in it. Chapter 2, verse 4. Paul gives us another reason for his letter. I say this in order that one may, no one, I say this in order that no one may delude or deceive you with plausible arguments. Don't be misled by their persuasive words. A lot of wordsmiths out there in the world, they usually write on blogs, show up on TV sets, come through your headsets while you're on your laptop. Don't listen to them. They only sound plausible. Paul knows there are false teachers at work in Colossae. False teachers are work everywhere. Satan's been busy. They have an agenda. And that agenda is to exalt themselves above Christ. To exalt themselves above Christ. To substitute a doctrine of works for the doctrine of grace. Oh no, if you do this and you do that and you do the other, then you'll be saved. Then you'll have assurance. Then you'll have comfort. Then you'll be consoled. No. All of those are found where? In Christ. They speak vain philosophies about the things of man. They preach mysticism rather than the mysteries of God. It's like turn of phrase, but it's true. They teach this strange thing about spiritualism, that somehow or other that's what we should be seeking instead of seeking Christ. But these false teachers cannot explain these gospel mysteries. Why not? Because they don't know Christ. So they cannot understand his words. Again, book of John. They don't have the spirit of Christ to teach them the things of Christ. They are liars. They are deceivers, teaching the Colossians to substitute their own imperfect righteousness for the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's what they're teaching. They're telling them to atone for their sins by their own works rather than relying on the atoning work of Christ alone. Don't do that. All false teachers, all false teachers from the beginning until the end of time 
seek and teach a salvation apart from Christ alone. That's just a fact. You want to identify sex and cults and, you know, wacko stuff? Okay, that's how you tell. They are teaching to rely on their own works. A salvation apart from Christ alone. And Paul tells us in the book of Romans, the end of that is death. So again, don't do that. We must no longer be led by the flesh, but by the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us, evidencing that we are children of God. Unfortunately, Paul isn't there to say these things to him face to face. So he's reaching out to them and to us in our own day with this letter. Paul explains this mystery of Christ in them, the hope of glory. He tells them of Christ's Spirit who lives in every believer, who teaches every believer, and, can, and convicts every believer of the truth and of sin. Paul doesn't need to be there. Paul does not need to be there in person. Why not? Because the Spirit of Christ who is at work in him is present there with them and he's at work in them just as he's at work in Paul. If, if, if they will only listen to him through God's word. Not Paul, the Spirit. If they'll only listen to him through God's word. Paul writes in verse 4, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. This phrase, I am with you in spirit, in verse 5 is literal. <laughs> it's literal. Paul is teaching and he is affirming that Christ's spirit lives in each believer in reality. In reality. It's a fact. If you don't have the spirit of Christ living in you, you are not Christ's. Harsh, but that's what Paul says in Romans 8, 9. He is the promised spirit who is given to each believer at conversion. He unites all believers as one. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, baptizing them into one body of Christ and making them to drink of one spirit. That's the only baptism of the spirit in all of the New Testament. So when someone tells you there's some other kind of baptism, that's nonsense. That's a false teacher. So that in Christ, this is from Galatians 3.14, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You receive the spirit through faith. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, as we sang this morning, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's from Ephesians 1.13. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. This is not an oddball statement in the New Testament. It is everywhere. In Christ is everywhere. This concept of being united to him, being one with him, being one with the Father through Christ is everywhere. You can't miss it. I'm trying to sensitize it to you today so that as you read God's word and you see all these phrases, these constant repetitions of in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, you'll realize the importance of it and what it means to you. What the Spirit is saying to Paul, he's saying to them through Paul. As Kurt put it, God uses people as instruments in communicating this truth. If they listen with spiritual ears, they'll hear the Spirit speaking through the words which Paul has written down in his letter to them. Those inspired words are the words of Christ. Paul is speaking the words of Christ. They are spirit and they are life. 
Paul is a prophet of God, speaking the words of God. And no prophet ever speaks of his own will, but only as the Spirit of God moves him. Christ's sheep who have his spirit hear his voice and follow him. Book of John again. They recognize the voice of their master, even if it's spoken by another believer. Even if it's spoken by another believer, they know those are the words of Christ. That's the truth of Christ. That's what I'm hearing. He may be speaking it, but I'm hearing Christ. And that's why it doesn't matter when you have a false teacher speaking the words of Christ. They're every bit as beneficial and fruitful to you as if spoken by a true believer. Why? Because the words of Christ are powerful in and of themselves. Life and truth exist in his words. I came to Christ through, in part, a guy named Jim Baker. Way back in the days. Jim was a charlatan. I didn't know that. He said, put your hand on the screen. I did. You know, I know. Later, Jim Baker came to Christ. The effect of his words spoken from the word of God were as effective in me as if Christ himself had spoken them. And the spirit of Christ in me recognized it and echoed it in my soul. So we recognize the voice of our master, even if spoken by another believer. We will not follow a stranger. We will flee for him. That's what it says in John 10, 5. So Paul calls upon them with the voice of Christ, by the spirit of Christ, to listen to their one teacher who is Christ. You call me teacher, and that's true. You call me master, that's true. Christ speaking to his disciples. The spirit was sent by Christ to teach all things to his people, even the mysteries of Christ, and bring to their their remembrance their remembrance, all that Christ has said to them. The things they understood when they first believed. That's what Paul is asking him to remember. What did I tell you when you first came to Christ? What was it that changed your life? What was it that all of a sudden resonated in your soul and you were never the same afterwards? What gospel did I teach you? Do you remember? Then don't listen to these other gospels. That's all he's saying here. The Spirit testifies of Christ And so we too, as believers in Christ, testify of Christ. That's our job. We are witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ and to salvation through him alone, in him alone. Verse 5 tells us that it's a joy, it's a joy to see a church acting in good order. Believers need to rank the things that they believe and do. We need to rank the things that we believe and that we do, give an order to them, in proper order, according to the word of God. Too often our lives are disorderly. Everything is out of proper sequence, out of proper priority. Paul is exhorting them by encouraging them, by complimenting them on the fact that their lives appear to be in good order. They understand the important things in life, and they understand what's not so important. And they keep the important things up front. He congratulates them on that. May that be said of every one of us. It's also a joy to see them being firm in their faith in Christ. Being firm in their faith in Christ. We just spent a year on that one, didn't we? Being firm in their faith in Christ. They don't waver in their faith, nor in what they believe. They're not tossed about by every wind of teaching. They're not swept up in the latest fads. And they didn't even have social media. Good order and firm faith are evidences that Christ is living in 
and among us. Good order and firm faith are evidences that Christ is living in and among us. I hope you see how important our union with Christ is to our salvation. I hope I've made that clear. How important it is to the life of the church and to the purity of the gospel. Christ speaks with one voice by his spirit who lives in every believer and unites them as one. So we'll stop there with the text. Oh, good. (laughs) These are mysteries. These are mysteries. They're all wonderful to think about. And I, I hope we can all appreciate how vital the Spirit's ministry is to the people of God, to you personally. Without him, it's just so many words. It's foolishness to the natural man. But with the Spirit and by the Spirit, the gospel is salvation to all who will believe it and place their faith in Christ as their Savior and their, and their Lord. That's what we celebrated this morning at the communion table. Now, this sound doctrine has been neatly tied in a bow for you. Please don't put it away in the attic of your mind to gather dust. <laughs> Often happens to me. Gee, that was really swell, you know, and then I put it away. And years later, I get, wow, look at that, you know, blow the dust off and say, wow, that was really cool. It's, if it's as important as I've said it is, then it must be put into practice in your daily life. So let's summarize what Paul has told us, speaking by the Spirit. Put these up on the board for you. They're on your handout. Just a summary of of the, the passage we've read. Rejoice when you suffer on behalf of Christ for his church. Ministers of the gospel are God's stewards to make his word fully known. To become mature believers, we must be warned and taught wisely. We must toil, labor for Christ, knowing he is powerfully at work in us. When we're knit together in love, we encourage one another. Such love is the assurance that we understand and know Christ. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if you want them, where do you go? Go to Christ. Therefore, don't be led astray by false teachers and false gospels. Don't do that. When a church acts in good order, firm in its faith, it's a joy. Okay, but how do we apply any of that? How do we apply any of that? How do we respond to it? These things are the results, the evidences of this gospel mystery that we've been looking at, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. But conversion alone does not produce these things in us. Your conversion alone cannot produce these things in you, even though that's the point at which we receive the promised Spirit. Having the Spirit allows us to be led by the Spirit. Having the Spirit allows us to be led by the Spirit. But being led by the Spirit is a choice that every believer has to make every day. If you didn't know, the Spirit is our helper, not our doer. When Paul says that we must toil, knowing that Christ is powerfully at work in us, he means for us to toil. He means for us to labor, to be about our Father's business with all our strength, with all His strength that's at work in us. And yet, to do that, we must be connected to the vine, who is Christ. Again, apart from him, we can know nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing that is pleasing in God's sight. We can do nothing that is pleasing in God's sight apart from Christ. We must be clothed with Christ. What does that look like? We must be in Christ. What does that look like? In order to be ambassadors, we must be clothed and must be in Christ in order to be his ambassadors, in order to speak with his voice, 
That's going to take some work. To do that, we must be taught Christ. We have to be warned until Christ is formed in us. We have to be conformed to his image. We must become mature in Christ. We must come to fully understand the mystery of the gospel and experience the joy of God's grace, undeserved mercy. We must love one another, recognizing Christ in one another, recognizing Christ in one another. Do you do that as you talk to one another? We did that this morning. As you talk, as you talk do you see Christ in one another? We need to serve Christ in one another. We have to love one another on his behalf. When we say that we're one body in Christ, that's a truth to be believed. It's not a chore to be attained. That's a truth to be believed, and to the extent that we believe it, it's true. What do we call that? One thing equals the other. They got a tautology. Oh, yeah. One of them, they're Greek words. We have to live accordingly. We want to become serious students of Christ, don't we? Don't you want to become a serious student of Christ? Taught by those who have been gifted to teach us about him through his word. And that teaching, that learning, doesn't come by words alone. As Kurt likes to remind me, Bill, don't just hand him a book. <laughs> it comes by the Spirit. It comes by the Spirit, and it comes by example. And it comes by example. And I think that's where many of us balk. Teachers and students alike, we balk at that. We feel completely inadequate to serve as an example of what it means to have Christ in us, and we feel inadequate even to follow such examples. Paul said to the Corinthians, imitate me, follow me as I follow Christ. Literally it says, come to know me as I come to know Christ. He later says what we all feel like, who is sufficient for these things? None of us, except by his Spirit except by Christ, who is at work in us. He's the one that makes us sufficient to do this. So what do you do? You trust in that. And then you act. And then it comes to be. So it's a choice. Is he asking the impossible of us? I don't think so. Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant to be like his master. So let's choose to be more and more like Christ, who lives in us by his Spirit. Let's choose to let him be seen in us as we come to know him more and more. That's what we're called to. That's who we are as Christians. That's who we are as followers of Christ. But what's our motivation for making that choice? Look again at the phrase, the hope of glory. It may seem disconnected from the rest. The mystery of the gospel is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ, Christ is our hope of glory. Believing in him gives us hope of eternal glory, a firm expectation of what he has promised us. And that hope gives impetus to our desires and motion to our feet. We exercise our hope by acting in hope. Hope is the given. Acting is what's required of us. Act in hope. So what is it about this hope that, in, that evidences Christ in you? Or how does having Christ in you convey that hope of glory. That's on your handout. That's homework. That's for you to take and meditate on. So those two questions are there for you. I'll repeat them. What is it about this hope that evidences Christ in you? Or how does having Christ in you convey that hope of glory? 
Christ is the mystery of the gospel. Christ himself. In him is all wisdom and knowledge. That's a mystery. The Trinity is a mystery. Being both God and man is a mystery. His incarnation, resurrection, ascension, redeeming atonement, and imputed righteousness are all a mystery. Hard to explain, hard to put words to. And yet this is the gospel. Christ is the sum and the substance of that gospel. I'm going to close with a paraphrase from John Gill's commentary. It's on verse 127. I'll put this up on the board for you. It's a bunch to chew on. Christ is in his people, not only as the omnipresent God, the creator of all things in whom we live, move, and have our being, but by special grace he inhabits us. And here's the fun part. And we are his habitation. We have communion with him because of our union to him. Christ is the ground and the foundation of all our hopes of glory. We're waiting for it. We rejoice at the hope of it. He is even now making us fit for glory by his presence in us and by his intercession for us at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Christ's righteousness has given us a title to glory. We own it. It's ours. We have a title to glory. His spirit is the pledge of it. That's why he gave him to us. And the substance of it is Christ himself, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the preciousness of your word. We thank you for the comfort, the assurance, the consolation of your spirit in us. We thank you that he is teaching us all things about you, that you have a treasury that's kept in the heavenlies and your spirit goes and takes from that treasury and imparts that to us as we need it, when we need it, when we're ready for it. What care for us, what love for us, what mercy towards us that he should be so patient with us and teach us bit by bit the things we need to know that day. Not all things, just what we need to know for that day. And your spirit takes and divides those up. He distributes that among us. And then we get to share those things with one another every time we meet. Whether it's on a Sunday morning, whether it's over coffee, whether it's by a phone call, whether it's by email, we get to share those things with one another. Things which you have imparted to us by your Spirit. Oh Lord God, we are so grateful and so humbled by that care for us. We thank you for all that we are because of Christ, for all that we will be in Christ. Amen.